I am Ryan Cox with Amelia Flieger, and welcome to the Indiana Association for Gifted podcast series. Today's episode is on gifted students in primary schools with our special guest, Nancy Herzog. Thanks, Ryan. Amelia Flieger here. Welcome, Nancy. Thanks so much for being here with us today and talking with us about early childhood, primary grade levels, and looking at giftedness at those levels. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you for having me, for one thing. Um, I'm currently a professor in learning sciences and human development at the University of Washington. I was the director of university primary school at the University of Illinois for 15 years and on faculty there before I was recruited to the University of Washington, where I directed the Robinson Center for Young Scholars. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, we'll just kind of jump right in here. Um, Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, I'm an elementary school principal, so we have a variety of questions here from an administrator, educator, parent, student point of view. So from an administrator, how can I make sure that the gifted students in my school are receiving their academic needs? That's a great question. Administrators need to support their teachers by making sure that they have their tools, that they have resources, and that the school culture is one in which it's important to challenge all students. Um, Especially, I think the administrator can really emphasize what Carol Tomlinson calls a pervasive expectation of growth in each classroom and that the culture of learning in that school is both learning for teachers to continue to grow and learning for children. And I think that's the culture that would most support the teachers and the families. That's great. Wonderful. So from the educator standpoint, you know, one of the things that we always look at wanting to do very quickly and taking tools back to have in our tool chest, how could teachers differentiate quickly in the classroom for those primary grade level gifted students? In my experience, teachers know how to differentiate instruction and they say, I just don't have the time. And they don't have the time because they're doing a lot of whole group instruction. And when you're in front of the class, you don't have time to talk to individual students or to work with small groups of students. So the the most essential thing that I say for teachers is to figure out a way where there are many things going on in your classroom at the same time, and that classroom management includes small group instruction, individual instruction, having your whole um, time period consist of choices for students that you put in that make sure that when they make those choices, they're optimally challenging themselves. And when they're making their choices, you then have time to walk around or call small groups. I used to do my entire literacy instruction while students were in choices, working on the curriculum. From a parent point of view, let's say that my child's school says that they differentiate, but all I can see is that my child gets a different worksheet. How can I convince the school that it is not enough for her? So you're going to hear me say growth a number of times, and I think teachers need to document growth in their students, and parents should expect that documentation. And so that's another thing that administrators can support teachers in is ways to have ongoing assessment, ways to document student progress, not just on report cards, but in every subject, you know, is an ongoing. And it's a fair question for parents to come in and say, show me, you know, how my child has grown in a certain subject. And it's sometimes hard for parents because if kids are doing very well and they're always excelling, they're not being challenged. So there's also that education to parents that says, okay, you want to see where your child misses some information here. You want to see that conceptual growth. 
So I think it is um, a conversation that uh, should be had with parents and teachers, and children should start to document their own growth. They should know that the goal of what they're doing is to learn something new and, and even get in greater depth. And so I think that is the responsibility of the teacher, but a conversation for everybody. So, wow, what I hear you saying is that even children in early childhood at the primary grade levels should be documenting their growth so that they can see it. Absolutely. So when they're working on, um, so I focus on inquiry-based approaches, which I think are optimally challenging for students. And when they do that, they can say, you know, uh, an example is we did a project who measures what in our neighborhood. And we asked them, you know, what, what, what do you think? What are your memory and experiences about measurement? And they didn't realize that there's standard and non-standard measurement or that they measure themselves when they go to the doctor's office and they measure in inches. But then they measure cups when they, you know, uh, do baking. And so at the end of it, we had them do a PowerPoint presentation and said, okay, this is what you knew before. Now what do you know? And one little boy said, I measure things every minute, every day, every second, <laughs> because he knows that, in, you know, they measure the speed in the car. You know, he started to become aware of all the different ways that we use measurement tools, and that's in the standards. Wonderful. So how are some other ways that kids can measure their own growth, or can we show growth for those littles? Yeah. You know, I dealt with preschoolers. You know, they can set goals, you know, um, so in their writing, you know, how, how many paragraphs do they want to write or how many, they used to call them big words or expensive words do they want to put in their own writing. I had a wonderful first grade teacher at university primary school that would have uh, writing conferences with the student and talk about conventional writing and, you know, and start to see where the punctuation goes in and they can start seeing those things and set goals for those. Awesome. Awesome. Even young ones. I just love hearing (laughs) that because I taught kindergarten for four years uh, before moving into intermediate grade levels and they can do it and they want to do it and they like to see things change and fluctuate for themselves. And they can see that they're learning because it's their words that's on the paper. It's, you know, it's not about right or wrong answers. And I should have said that at the very beginning, you know, that teachers have to explain to parents that the climate in the classroom is really focused on learning and there's lots of different answers when you when you work on learning as opposed to what does the teacher want me to say or what is the the worksheet supposed to have you said earlier that teachers already differentiate in the classroom but when you bring that word up di it scares some of them so what are some great like resources that we could send educators to to look at those kind of entry tickets exit tickets those things that take that kind of scary part of going from a whole classroom to a small group? It's a good question. I always use Tomlinson's work. ASCD has a lot of teacher materials. There are newer materials now that are out. Um, And I always think that if teachers are using also approaches to education, like the project approach or an approach of inquiry, then the open-endedness also allows for that differentiation to occur. The other thing I think is really important is for teachers to have systems put in place for their classroom management. So, you know, a bucket where kids will want feedback. They That's another way to get their agency. I want, you know, and I want to put this in here and I want my peers to give me feedback. Or I put this in here and I want my teachers to give me feedback. So it's not criticism and evaluation, but it's learning to give and get feedback. 
And that's a way to differentiate because they are then seeing where they are and what needs the next step to be. So you talked about classroom management there, and one of the questions that we have from a parent perspective um, is an example of, you know, my son it gets in trouble every day for being the class clown, but I just think he's bored. What can I do as a parent for, for that? Well, a lot of reason why students are sitting there doing nothing is they've already finished the work or they didn't find it relevant or meaningful. So, again, building... Um, classroom activities on students' interests. Uh, You know, a lot of kids at that age, if they're strong in math, using practical applications, let's look at the sports, let's look at the statistics. You know, that's why we say math all around us. You know, we want to go for mathematical thinking. We don't want to just go for math computation. Same with, um, you know, collecting data. We would have a sign-in in the morning, and kids would ask questions, um, you know, and they would take the data and put it in a pie graph or a pie chart. You know, kids would sign, you know, which do you prefer, white rice or brown rice? Or, you know, and then they would use the ratio. How many kids did this? So it's about getting kids engaged in activities that, they're, that they find interesting, and they shouldn't be bored. Um, and also having a classroom management system where when they're done with something, they can delve into something else. And that's why you have this, you know, choice time where when they're done with this, they do this, or, um, or they can choose what they do. A lot of school districts uh, here in the state of Indiana wait to start their gifted programming until the upper elementary grade levels. Could you explain why it's important to offer programming before that? And what benefits does it have for younger students and maybe even along with kind of this social-emotional learning part of it? Right. So that's a tricky question for me because I'm very much against labeling young children. And the reason for that is children come to us with multi-languages, with different family cultures, with different backgrounds. And any time you test a young child, you're going to get an immediate bias. So I'm really against labeling. So my um, preference would be for, for teachers immediately, very young, to start identifying strengths. Not giftedness, but strengths. Because I can teach to strengths. If it's just a general giftedness, that doesn't tell me where the child is. So developing those rich classroom activities and all of the observational skills that teachers have, they can see, oh, this student is interested in natural habitat, or this student is interested in experimenting, you know, with what freezes faster, you know, food coloring or something else, and they can do experiments. So it's about the teacher, again, setting up that environment where they're keen observers of strengths and making that environment one that's a lot of rich activities for children of all nationalities and culture. Now, it is true that many states have... um, laws and regulations about identification early, but I would put all those kids in a talent pool and say, I'm identifying every child with talent potential, and I'm going to make sure if, they're, if they are advanced in a, in a subject area, give them advanced work. But if they're not yet, which is what potential is, make sure they have opportunities to explore different areas of interest. I have a follow-up question. Um, you know, we talked about differentiation Uh, in the general ed classroom, but what are some other ways we can support gifted learners in the classroom other than differentiation? Are are there other ways? I know you talked about the inquiry-based method, but um, other ways that we can support those little learners? I think, well, one way is the curriculum. 
have a lot of opportunities for children to access advanced curriculum. So there's curriculum and then there's instruction. And you need both. You know, you need to be able to provide, for example, what the literacy level is in the classroom. You have a wide range. You want to make sure that there is the wide range of reading materials and types of materials for reading. And, you know, that's just one example of how you make sure the environment um, provides the curriculum and materials. It, It also, with technology the way it is, Kids can access information. They can go to the Smithsonian Museum, for example, mm-hmm. and get something out of it. They can go to the art museum. You know, they can go to um, the just any almost any uh, park here in the United States that's online, and you can find the topography of the park. So I think using um, that open area of technology for children to access information in their interest area is another way that they can expand upon what that required curriculum is. I do have one more question, and it wasn't on the list, okay. so I hope you're okay with me asking this. But what, as an early childhood expert, what is your opinion around early entrance to kindergarten? Uh, well, if the child is ready, I advocate it. You know, it's age... <laughs> Age is arbitrary, right? You know, that five-year-olds are ready for kindergarten. At university primary school, and I always tell this story, we had a child that wanted to get in, and we were following the Illinois laws, which they have to be five by September 1st. Well, this child, you could clearly see that he needed the advanced work. And again, at university primary school, we, we were a demonstration site for the project approach. And so we were all, you know, all areas of um, academics were accelerated or advanced as needed. And this little boy came in, and he just stayed in the classroom. The parents came to talk to me, and they said, I can't get him to leave. You know, his visit time was over, but they couldn't get him to leave. And they said, what do we do to get him in? And, of course, his birthday was like, you know, <laughs> August 31st and not September 1st. And I said, well, you know, in this state... And he said, yeah, but he was born in Israel, you know, so it was already September 1st. (laughs) And I just think, yes, it's so arbitrary. So there should be policies to have children enter kindergarten early. But again, with that caveat, kids are totally asynchronous when they're little. You know, they come in and they may be able to read at a fifth grade level, but they have the emotional skills of a typical four- or Mm five-year-old. So just advancing one grade level isn't going to solve an advanced child's problems necessarily. So all of that should be looked at. Um, And I would say with young children, asynchronous is the key. You know, the teacher has to be flexible and not have expectations that the child's going to be advanced in every area, especially in writing skills, you know, in physical skills, very little. They have speech vocabulary, and they could tell you fabulous stories, but don't ask a kindergarten boy to write it all down. Mm. Yep, definitely. If we wanted to find more information about Nancy Herzog, do we have social media or a website that we could go to? Um, Well, I, I am on the University of Washington website. I have a little video that they did. They had called them EduTalks. And it's about a teacher that I worked with in Illinois where she turned her first grade classroom around. I talk about in that video how she used to have every child do Apple Man. And then when she did a project on apples, it was much more engaging and intellectually thought-provoking. Um, I have articles, obviously. I wrote a book on early childhood gifted education. 
Um, the chapter in special populations was called Young Resilient or Young Curious and Resilient, the Population of Young Children. So, yes, they could find articles written of early childhood. Wonderful. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Is there anything else you'd like to share about early childhood before, before we wrap up? Uh, no, I think I want to introduce people to the Reggio Emilia approach. I take students there every other year, except for COVID. I take undergraduates and graduate students. And when I went, I was um, taught by Lillian Katz, who was the early childhood guru on the project approach, and she introduced me to the Reggio Emilia approach, where Howard Gardner found it one of the most um, challenging and creative approaches to early childhood education. And what I love about that approach is it focuses on the competency of the child. Every child is valued and respected, and the approach encourages children to express themselves in what they call the hundred languages. So if our classrooms were as enriching as that, then I think we would have children who were challenged, who became creative, who were problem solvers, and we wouldn't have bored children sitting in classrooms. Well said, well said. Thank you very much for visiting with us today. I'm Ryan Cox. And I'm Amelia Flieger. And a big special thank you to Nancy Herzog for being with us today. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is the Indiana Association for Gifted Children podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.